Now we're going to jump right into kind of the sermon this week. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And when you read scripture or preach on scripture, either one, the best way to understand scripture is to take a passage and to look at the context, which is kind of what comes before it, what comes after it, what the theme of the book is, who is writing the book, what the audience uh, that the author of the book is writing to, and kind of setting that within its historical context, and really being able to kind of get deep, and in doing so, you really come to understand the heart of what a passage is and what it really means, and we're not going to do that today. <laughs> I'm joking. I mean, I'm serious, but I was saying it in a joking way. Um, there's another way to understand things, and that's what we're going to do today. It's when you're trying to understand a theme that's repeated over and over and over and over throughout Scripture, and when you really try and get not just kind of the, the heart or the depth of the, of the one instance, but you're trying to get the pattern or the theme as it emerges throughout the whole counsel of God or, or the whole of Scripture, you kind of have to buzz through a whole lot of different passages and that's what we're going to do today. So if you're a note taker, um, just kind of have your pencil ready, your pen ready, paper. And you can write down a lot of these references as we go through it. And you can look at them later. Um, but we're going to really touch on a whole, lot of, um, a whole lot of the Bible. So we're going to start here in 2 Timothy. And we're going to read 2 Timothy 1 through 5. And this is what it says. It says this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. And the reason I kind of started with this passage today is, is I, I was really reflecting on this idea of quitting your friends uh, and removing yourself from a peer group or walking away or creating distance and that it's something that I've seen a thousand different times in Scripture in a, in a lot of different ways, but I've never heard it preached on. I've certainly never heard it preached on kind of as a, a principle or, or kind of why it's there from a wisdom standpoint. If I've heard it preached at all, it's usually in some kind of a really harsh or legalistic excommunication kind of church discipline kind of way. Um, but I've never really heard it taught. Like, why is this in so many places in the Bible? What today in Bend, Oregon, as people that, that are committed to this church and are committed to the Christian God, what does this kind of mean for us? And so what I want to do is come at it a little bit different than what I would call the footloose way of um, dealing with these kinds of things. When I was younger and before there was the Kevin Bacon game, um, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like you can get to anyone, it's like six degrees of separation, but six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, Kevin Bacon was in the movie Footloose. Now if you remember the movie Footloose, um, the guy that can dance comes and, and becomes friends with the daughter of the, of the pastor in town. 
And the pastor in town kind of controls the Christian kind of uh, the Christian running of the town. And because of an accident that happened after a dance or something to that effect where um, somebody lost their life, I think it was his son lost his life, uh, they, they banned dancing. They banned dancing, dancings of the devil. And so the whole movie is kind of how they fight the system, the kids fight the system, and the pastor and the daughter, her dad, and really push into his legalism. And then at the end, they get to have the dance, right? But it paints this picture that Christian principles or kind of the way of, of looking at things is this really uh, harsh, judgmental, hypocritical kind of a thing. And so I think one of the reasons we stay away from these kinds of passages is that we don't want to fall into being that kind of Christian. We don't want to look like the footloose dad um, because when, when you look at it in that movie, it's like we almost identify more with Kevin Bacon. Does that make sense? And so I want to try and maybe come at this a little bit different and set it in a context that makes sense and that we can wrap our, our, our minds around. So here we go. Uh, maybe we'll call this the, the not footloose, footloose sermon. Proverbs 20.19. A gossip betrays a confidence. So avoid anyone who talks too much. Proverbs 22.24. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered. Joshua 23, verse 7. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. This idea of being kind of held sway or being pulled or having as kind of the primary influence a God other than Yahweh or other than our God. Psalm 26, 4 through 5. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers, and I refuse to sit with the wicked. 2 Corinthians 6.14. This is talking about, um, about marriage. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness. And this speaks, by the way, all the references of yoke, there's about four or five of them in the Old Testament. All of the references are really about don't be yoked with the nations or don't be yoked with the, the gods, the foreign gods of other nations. This idea of literally being wishboned or pulled into two different directions. And Paul uses that same language and says, if your primary driving focus is God and you marry yourself and kind of unite with somebody whose primary driving focus is something other than God, maybe in another God or an idol that they worship or something that holds the supreme place in their life, they're going to pull that direction and you're going to pull this direction. And how can that be a good thing? How can that be a good marriage? And not only that, but it puts you in danger of being pulled away from God. And so Paul says, do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. By the way, the question I've been asked the most in the last four years, five years that we've been doing Q&A after, after church service. So if you go to the website askquestions.tv, which has videos from Justice Conference Q&A, Antioch, uh, Redux services, etc. The question that's been asked the most of me 
um, is that question. Talk about this idea of not being yoked together because I think it's an incredibly relevant question and um, tension-filled question for singles uh, or divorced people looking to get remarried and struggling against what does that really mean and, and is there gray there? Can I, you know, can I, can I marry this? What about this person that I like? And Paul is using this language and bringing it into marriage and saying don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? And so I want to show you this picture um, that Natalie was good enough to kind of make for me. I'm on an iPad now, so this is like a new, because I wanted to draw on top of a picture. There we go. Um, and so what I had her do was take a dark color and a light color, and basically this represents holiness, because God um, is holy, okay? And we, to some degree or varying degrees, are not. And this idea is that if we want to get closer to God, it means we have to grow in our holiness. And obviously, we're allowed to be close to God even when we're not holy because of what Christ has done for us. Okay, the forgiveness and the grace and the righteousness that's been given to us. But if we really want to know God, it means we have to begin to understand God, be like God, be united with God, resonate with God, have the same kind of mindset as God. If you talk about any one of your friends or um, best friends or your spouse, um, there's a closeness there and that closeness has to include some degree of like-mindedness, some degree of passion for the same things, or that you at least do the same things, or watch the same shows, or travel to the same places. The conversations are centered around things that you have in common. And if we want to know God, or if we want to get close to God, there has to be something in common with God. And so we necessarily have to move along this continuum of holiness or Christ-likeness, basically beginning to take on the character of God. And that means that if we're moving that direction, we're moving away from the character of the world, the priorities of the world, the things that the world would talk about, the ideas. Um, the, they're not the same. It's an either-or. And so we move along the spectrum and... And what we begin to find is we're moving away from this crowd, the world, the priorities of the world, the conversations of the world. Now what happened with Footloose is if you take God out of this equation and you just, I think I've actually got, hold on. There we go. I might start using this more often. Um... So if you take God out of the equation, what begins to happen is you, you're not looking up, you're looking down. And so either you judge, because look at those bad people down there, and I'm so much better than them, or you get puffed up with pride and become arrogant, and you begin to think, look at how much um, better than others I am, look at how great I am. And, and in pride, you begin to find that there's also complacency. There's no motivation to continue to go forward because the center of gravity isn't above you. The center of gravity is really below you and it's all about um, that thing you stand in judgment on. 
That's what begins to happen if this is the only part of the picture and you get that legalistic footloose kind of idea. If we see it um, the other way, this is what I think Paul saw when he said, I'm the worst of all sinners. Because Paul knew more than everybody else. Um, He probably did more than everybody else. So why didn't he say, I'm better than everybody else? Because he knew that no matter how much he knew, he couldn't fully, in and of himself, live into it. No matter how much he knew and no matter how great he was, there was still a gap between what he knew he should be like and what he was able to actually be like. None of us are perfect. None of us are able to even do the things we know we want to do. Paul says that in the book of Romans. I know the things that I ought to do, and I still can't do all of them. And so Paul's eyes were here, and he looked at God, and he, even though he was, he was in some ways head and shoulders above his peers, he, he looked at God and saw the holiness of God and the character of God and knew what he wanted to be, yet he still wasn't there. And he was trying to continue to grow. And he beat his own body. And, and uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I beat my own body trying to make it submit to what I know I want to be and do because where I really want to go is, is closer to God. I want to know God. I want to be with God. I want to know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. I want to be able to stand here. And it's not a position of pride. It's language of desire. Because I think we all clamor for God to hear us. We all clamor for intimacy with God. But what we miss is that intimacy with God is necessarily connected to our growth in holiness and character. If we don't understand God's character, if we don't understand God's holiness, if we don't understand God's heart, if we can't understand God's priorities and what drives God, how can we really say that we're going to have some kind of an intimacy with him? And so what we begin to really find is that somehow we turn God into this um, mercenary concept. And what I mean by that is, uh, we want to utilize God. We want the benefits of God. Um, we, we want God in our life because we know that somehow that would, would speak to our life and help us um, maybe have an easier life or have more peace in our heart or, or maybe have more joy in our heart or just even feel less scared sometimes. But we want kind of all these things that God will bring. But what we, we, we need to realize, we don't always want God. And so when we begin to realize that God's benefits come with God or that what God does in our life necessarily comes with who God is, then we begin to understand character is involved. God's heart is involved. And so what does that picture then look like? If we come back to this, um, we realize that we're in a conundrum. That if I want to grow and become more Christ-like and be closer with God and know God better, it means I can't stand here and be like these people. That it's an either-or. And that if I want to be a friend of God and a friend of sinners at this level, I have to understand it this way. That if they are going to influence me and pull me down, that I have to somehow cut that connection. I have to somehow remove myself from that center of gravity 
because if I stay there, it will impede or damage or destroy my ability to move this way and be closer to God. Um, but what about Jesus? He was a friend of sinners, wasn't he? I mean, aren't we supposed to be in the world, just not of the world? So, Ken, what, why are you talking about leaving our friends or not associating with these people down here? Because Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's a different kind of friend. You see, when Jesus was a friend of sinners, he did it as somebody influencing them. Jesus came on mission to seek and save the lost, to bring them light and a message of hope that they could be called out of darkness and into the light with him. See, Jesus came, and when he approached this crowd, he did it as one knowing he was going to bring them here. So here's your, your choice, really. Here's the choice, really. That if the crowd is negatively influencing you, if it's going to damage your relationship with God, if it's going to pull you away from God, then you have to step out of that. You have to guard your soul. You have to protect your life. What the goal here is that you would become grounded enough, your maturity would grow enough, your character would be strong enough that you could go back into the crowd, maybe in a different way, not sitting and hanging out and having just beer and chips all night long and, and making small talk, but going in with a purpose to say, talk to me about what's going on in your life. Tell me your struggles. Let me feel the pain of your broken marriage or the relational difficulties or your failed business. Let me empathize with you and show you what love looks like. I care about you. And not only do I care about those things, I care that you would come to know God as well because ultimately that's the only place you're going to find any kind of healing for all the brokenness in your life. Let me show you that light. Let me love you that way. Because ultimately we're all supposed to get there. Turn to 1 Peter with me if you would. First Peter, one of the great passages of the church or what the church's identity is, is when Peter says in chapter 2, let me just read the whole, I'll read the whole thing, just starting in, uh, I'll, we'll start in verse 1. So First Peter chapter 2, he says this, Therefore, because of the word that was preached to you in the blood of Jesus Christ, because of all this, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And now, you, uh, now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And then verse 9, it says this, But you are a chosen people, a, ro a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. It's unbelievable. 
Um, this passage is, is borrowing language from Exodus and back when God called the Israelites out and he said to them, even though he had uh, the Levites as, as kind of the paid priests or the paid pastors or whatever you want to talk about that way, what he said of the whole nation is that you are a chosen people. That, that they together collectively are a royal priesthood, that they are the ones that are a holy nation set apart unto him. And Peter takes all this language and says, now you the church, you Antioch, are this. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You, Antioch, are a people belonging to God that you may. Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the idea here is you've been called out, but you're to be witnesses back into. You've been brought out of darknesses, uh, darknesses, plural, in case you haven't ever heard that word. Um, You've been brought out of darkness, but now you're to go back in as light and shine light into darkness. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And, and so this whole idea is one where you'd be able to go back into the world. That's the goal. But you have to have that as the mindset and you have to have that as, as the grounding and the maturity and the character. I've seen parents um, argue about the kids that their friends are friend, uh, the, the friends that their kids are friends with. Darknesses. Um, I've seen parents justify their, their high school students being friends with certain kids saying, we're supposed to be in the world, just not of the world. And the kid that their friend, oh, their ki- the, oh, this is a, I mean, it's a pretty, I don't, I'm thinking of a, a specific person. I think God's not wanting me to share the story of a specific person. Um, if your kid's in high school and he's friends with a kid who's doing drugs or dealing drugs um, and your son or daughter isn't grounded enough to be influencing them, do you know what you're setting yourself up for? And, and using a verse like we're supposed to be in the world, not of the world, does not necessarily fit that situation. Wisdom fits that situation to say, I have to protect my kid or I have to teach my kid to be smart enough to stand outside of that. Certainly until they're discipled enough that they own their faith enough to be able to go not be influenced by this kid and the older brother that deals drugs, but to possibly challenge that and present an invitation into something different. We can't be so foolish with the world and throw around verses and, and make it seem like, you know, just because we, we, we paint the cross on things, that, that we're always going to be the thing that's protected or that's not going to fall or that's going to go the way we want it to go. And it's not so. Or else Scripture would have said, whenever you run into people of the world, be friends with them. Because there's no harm in it. And scripture actually says something radically different. It says, be careful. It matters. Because a person is their character. And God is his character. 
And if we want to become more like God, our character has to begin to look more like God's character. Um, Another way of saying this would be simply the character of a person is the chemistry of a person. If I took and wrote the, the chemical formula for something on the board, I'm thinking H2O, it's a little too simple, but I think you'll get the picture. If you change the chemistry, H2C, I don't know if you can even do that. Um, H nothing O. I, I don't know. Um, if you change the formula, you change the substance. Do you not? Do you not? So God's character is his chemistry. Your character is your chemistry. And God is trying to remake your chemistry to be his chemistry. And when you go into the world, you can't put yourself in a position where the world is remaking your chemistry to not be more like God's chemistry, but to be less like God's chemistry. And if you put yourself in a position where your chemistry is being made less like God's chemistry, that in Scripture is an incredibly scary situation. And we're warned in Scripture That when that's beginning to happen, you should be scared of your salvation. That's something you never hear in church, by the way. Because we talk a little too cheaply about salvation in church. Because we say something that's true. Once you're saved, you're always saved. We say that in church a lot because it's true. But what we don't tell you is that both John and Peter and the writer of Hebrews say, if this is happening to your chemistry... You should be really concerned about your, um, you, your confidence of whether you are saved or were saved. Does that make sense? That your degree of assurance or confidence um, about whose you really are should be something that literally scares you. And we don't talk about that often enough in Scripture. If your chemical makeup is going this way, that should scare you. And Christians are actually told to warn other Christians if this is happening. Hey, you might not know it because it's happening to you by degrees. And it's happening to you slowly. But I can see it in your life. Your chemistry is changing. Your character is changing. You're becoming more ungodly. Having a form of godliness, but lacking all its power. And to those of you that know such people... Timothy warned us, Paul warned Timothy, I'm sorry, not to be swayed by such people and to literally stand outside of that and to guard our character, our chemistry, to make sure that we're putting ourselves in the right position, to be influenced by God, to let the Holy Spirit do its thing in us. And then when we go back into these situations, we go into it with a different mindset. A different mindset. Guarded, protected, focused about what we're trying to do. Let me put it to you this way. Um, ah, let's move forward. All right, we're going to move forward. Uh, your characters, your chemical makeup. 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Ben Franklin didn't say it. Um, it's actually right there in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And so, um, how do we know who to quit of our friends? 
if the, if the title of this message is quitting your friends, and I, I don't mean to be flippant about that. I was talking to Tamara, and Tamara's like, um, how are people going to know? I mean, at the end of the day, if you walk out, like, how, how do you apply that? How do you know? And I want to just, we're, we're going through The Hobbit right now with my daughters. And um, the other night before we started reading The Hobbit, I just said to them, girls, do you know how God speaks to you? Um, because I think kids are always taught that language, God speaks to you. But they take it very literally. And they get really confused. Like something's wrong with them. I haven't, they think it's going to be a voice in their ear like my voice in their ear. And, um, and I think that if we don't help unpack that, they end up with some real challenges and struggles. By the way, communication isn't the sound. Communication is the intentionality and the information. My vocal cords obey my intentions. The sound waves that come and hit your ears and make certain sounds are interpreted by you actively with your rational mind. But at the end of the day, it's my intended meaning and your perceived reception of meaning that's really the communication. Okay, The mechanism between is irrelevant um, because I can replace it with words on paper, can't I? I can replace it with body language. If you know me, I do that a lot and sometimes I overdo it. Like, um, my wife will be doing something, I'll be trying to get her attention, and, and if I can't quite get it, I'll start overdoing it. And then before long, just intentionality, I'm, I'm m- making like an axe murderer face, <laughs> body language-wise. Um, and then all of a sudden, she's like, if somebody saw you, may, I mean, what are they going to think? And that's actually something I'm working on. Um, but, but that can be a medium of communication, right? Um, I don't know. There's other ones. Um, but it's, it's the information given and the information received that's communication. Does that make sense? And so we have to begin to, to learn how to teach our kids about communication with God, and it takes on several different forms. So we're reading The Hobbit. I stop and I talk to the kids. Do you know how God speaks to you? Like, well, no, not really. Well, let's walk through a couple different ways. And I said, do you know how sometimes when you're about to do something wrong or, or you're around things that are wrong or people that are doing wrong and you just kind of feel a sense that like, uh. And they're like, yeah. I said, that's called your conscience. And your conscience speaks to you what God has already decreed as universal principles that speak his will. In his opinions. Your conscience taps you into already communicated, already structured patterns that show us or tell us or speak to us what God intends for righteous living. Does that make sense? And so I was trying to tell them, your conscience just isn't something that annoys you. Your conscience is pointing you back to what God has placed in you as a blueprint of what his desires are. It's a form of communication. So I said that to my daughters, and they're like, oh, that's what that is, you know? I'm like, yeah, that's what that is. It's, it's a way that God's speaking to you. And then I started talking about um, the still, small voice, getting alone with God and just really listening and, and just subtly beginning to pick up information, just a, 
a simple thread of information. And solitude is the best way to hear that. I think our generation, with all the noise, we have to learn how to quiet ourselves and get somewhere for hours where God can begin to clarify and bring it all the way down. Scripture is a way that God speaks to you. You read something and you're like, I don't know what was going on with David when he wrote that psalm. But I know what's going on with me now and I know that just spoke to me. It's information as if it was spoken directly to me, relevant right here now. Church is a way that God speaks to you. It's, you know, you're sitting there and I say something about, I don't know, joke about blondes or something. And you're like, you know what? We have to sell our house and move to Costa Rica. <laughs> I just heard a word from, you know, that happens. It has nothing to do with the sermon. It's like God moves in, in those circumstances and through other people and the preaching of, of, of the word or, or whatever it is, just the discipline of it. Um, worship, God can speak to you. Um, writing out your prayers and praying over a period of time and then subtle little coincidences. What Tamara and I call coincidences with a capital C are when we don't know what decision to make, we don't know where to go, and we're asking God to guide us. And little by little, we see those uh, breadcrumbs, and they have the fingerprints of God on them. It's like those things all kind of go somewhere. They're not random coincidences. They're God slowly leading me because of what I was praying. There's no other way to understand it. Now, anyone I tell it to is going to be like, yeah, you're making that up. But if you've ever had that happen to you, it's a way in which God communicates to us. Does that make sense? There's more. But when we begin to unpack this, it's like, wow, we can actually have a relationship with the God of the universe if we get out of this kind of thin understanding of it, um, like thundering from the heavens flannel board, right? But actually speaking about what's going on. But the conscience one. Tamar says, how are people going to know? I'm like, yeah, they already know. They already know. This one about friends or your peer group, it's the one where your conscience speaks to you. You know when you get together with those people, what it begins to look like, the hours spent, what you spend time talking about, what you get to laugh about, how you feel when you leave. And you know that you're not influencing that system, that you're not calling that person into the light. You know. We know. We know who uh, we hang out with and sharpens our marriage. We know who we hang out with and somehow our marriage is, is more shaky. We know who we hang out with and we end up criticizing church and churches more. Um, and we know who we hang out with and they pull us along with them into service and serving the church. Um, I, I talked about criticism last week. I mentioned it briefly that, you know, criticism without a name, it's like a bullet. Criticism with a name is conversation. And then I talked about, like, we can talk for a week on the same conversation going in circles because we can feed on criticism. Affirmation, once it's given, it's kind of like it's over. You know, you imagine affirming somebody, and, and, and you can only imagine about five minutes worth of it. And then you're like, okay, it's, I, it's done now. I gave the affirmation, right? And so you end up seeing something here that... Um, the friends you're not supposed to have are probably the ones that are the most critical or you have the most fun being critical. Because here's the thing. The less we're invested in something, the more critical we can become. The more we own something, 
the more we want to affirm it into having higher value. The more critical we are, the less invested we are. The more we own something, the more we affirm it. Here's an Oprah analogy. Oprah, a number of years ago, I don't know, this might be like 10 years ago, there's the mad cow. Was it, is it mad cow? Mad cow disease was going on in England, and she interviewed somebody on her show about it, and then she made this comment. She's like, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to eat beef again. Do you guys remember this? And she got sued by the beef industry for, um, because of her stature and influence. Um, the whole beef market crashed on Wall Street. And people lost millions, if not billions of dollars, because of how her words affected the perception people had of beef. Okay? And so they, they said, hey, you can't be that careless. Look at what your careless words did by being critical of beef. The stock went down, and they sued her for it. Okay? Um, Oprah also started a girl's, uh, like a girl's academy. I think it was in South Africa. And um, I think she still does it, but it was like it took for a year or two, all of her time and her energy and her life was this like the, this apple of her eye, this, this treasure, this girl's academy. She loves empowering young women and this girl's academy she created. And everything she had, her show or magazine, I don't know, whatever she had was all praising and, and giving the accolades of this school. Why? Because she wanted to infuse value into it. She wanted other people to see it as something great. She wanted people to get excited about it, right? And you have power in your words. Words have power. Self-fulfilling, self-created prophecies happen all the time in our lives through our words. You want to see your kids have issues? Criticize them. You want to see them have confidence and, and self-worth? Affirm them. Even if there's only one thing out of 500, affirm that thing. And by the end of the year, there's going to be 50 out of 500 that you can affirm. Your words have power. And when you criticize things like the church or other Christians or whatever it is, you are literally tearing those things down. You're making however bad they are worse. And the reason you're doing that is because you don't care. You're not invested. It doesn't mean anything to you. And if it does mean something to you, if you, you really see it as belonging to you, your family, God's family, something that matters, your team, the thing that you're tied to, then you're going to be like Oprah with the Girls Academy. I know it's not perfect, but look what we can make of it. Look, look what we can do with her. Look at all the, the bright spots that are going on. And you're going to invest. And so here's the difference be between the two camps again. These people aren't serving. Because serving is the posture of investment. Serving is the posture of investment. It's the posture of concern. It's the posture of ownership. So the critics that you can talk about same conversation, endlessly, two hours a night, over and over. They don't have any ownership. The ones that do are serving. So what you find is if you come alongside these people, even if affirmation only takes five minutes and then you're done, like what are we going to talk about now? What you find you talk about with these people, 
our plans, ideas, strategy about how to make kids' ministry better, how to help homelessness in Central Oregon. It's unbelievable that our percentage of homelessness per capita here is higher than anywhere else. It's crazy. What can we do about it? And, and you, you find that you get around these people and you start trying to figure things out. That's what you talk about. And your character and your heartbeat and, and what, what you're thinking about begins to show up as having the same kind of chemistry as what the Holy Spirit is looking at, caring about and talking about. So you want to know, um, like, what am I going to talk about? If I, I mean, honestly, if I stop being critical, I don't know. I might only get like five words a week. What am I going to talk about? Find the right crowd and join them. And you're, you're going to realize there's a whole world of conversation that you're going to have. A never-ending world of conversation that looks a lot different than criticism. Here's another thing. Um, I, I, I was telling Tamara, I was like, you know, it's almost like, whoa. Um, it's almost like part two of this sermon should be like how to win friends and influence people. Because what you find is when you leave a group of friends that's been pulling you down, there's not, like, it's not easy. It's not like you just walk one step over that afternoon and you've got this brand new set of friends that, that like, pull you along. And what you begin to find is it's not easy because it's not all about you. They're not going to do the work for you. Usually the right group of friends is you have to be willing to come alongside them and care about what they care and invest into what they're investing in because they don't, it's not like they have lots of time going on. The people that are serving God look a lot like Paul who said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. In other words, my, whole, my energy is gone every day. I go to bed exhausted with a smile on my face, but exhausted because I'm serving so much. And so what people that leave the wrong crowd don't understand is it's not like everyone else is just going to come do it for you. You can't always act like a child and your mom's going to like fix all the food. You have to be willing to say, if I want to run with those people, I got to get in the race with those people. That's a, it's a different, it's a different conversation. Let's move along quickly. Um, a person is character. A person is also their mission. Meaning our mission in life defines us. When Jesus said uh, in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What he was basically saying is, I'm all about this. Now if you're all about something that diminishes this, you're fighting against me. Don't you understand that? Like I can't sit here and hang out with you and care about what you're doing and you can care about what I'm doing if, if, the, if what we're doing is directly opposite each other. Let me put it this way. A DEA agent isn't going to be best friends with somebody cooking meth. No, no breaking bad illusions intended. But I'm, but I'm serious. If, if what defines you is to try to help society this way, and somebody's pushing against that and creating the very mess that you're trying to clean up, you can't really be for each other. You can't be yoked together. A person is defined by their mission. God's mission for his kingdom is to build a just and righteous kingdom. Jesus' mission was to come and to seek and save the lost, to bring them back closer to God, reconcile with them, 
with God so that they could know their, uh, the father that they're estranged from. That's his mission. And if instead of trying to seek and save the lost, we're just encouraging the lost to stay lost or helping add to their lostness, Jesus is looking at us and saying, I'm going to slay you. You're angering me. You're getting in the way. That's why he said if anyone causes one of these little children to stumble, it'd be better if they had a millstone tied around their neck, really heavy, and thrown in a, in a lake to drown. Like, if you are causing somebody to stumble and fall away from God, if you're the one messing their chemistry up, their character up, so that they're far from God, I'm against you. And, it, and it's not good for you if I'm against you, by the way. It would be better for you if, if this shocking reality happened to you than for me to get my hands on you. You better take my word serious, says Jesus. We've, we've, uh, there was an article, a lot of articles in the 80s called The Feminization of um, the American Church. And stereotypes here, and I don't mean to trip into stereotypes at all. What was meant by the article was that pastors had, that culture had begun to expect pastors to be very emotional, very feeling-oriented. And, and that it was a real like connection with the nurturing side of Jesus. And that was the picture that, that society in America had kind of begun to create for the pastor role. Because um, the pastor who used to be um, the parson, and the word parson literally means the person. That in a city, think Little House on the Prairie, um, they married people. They did like the lawyer stuff. They did uh, finance kind of advices. They... they Helped, they helped with a lot of things. That the, the pastor, the parson, was probably the most educated person in the city. And they filled a lot of different roles. And that what had happened in the American church was that pastors aren't the smartest with business. And they're not the smartest with legal advice. And they're not the smartest. You know, so what are they good with? Well, they're good with like people, ministering to people. And so somehow in that, it had created this idea of the nurturing side of Jesus and the pastor. And that's kind of our, our idea. And that's certainly there. And we don't always talk about it enough as it, it looks in Jesus. But Jesus was a, a pretty bad dude in the good kind of way. Um, there's a picture of Jesus walking into the temple courts. And if you pic picture a hot, dusty afternoon in a desert kind of climate, um, with the sun beating down. And you're talking um, the fair. This is the Passover when that city just swells to overflowing. And uh, you can't move around. And there are these money changers. And there are these people that are profiting off of the temple. And Jesus comes and sees this. And he goes out, weaves together a whip, premeditated violence, comes back in. And drives the money changers out of, out of the thing. He uses the whip on the people to separate men from their money. You don't do that by being like uber feeling-ish. Hey guys, <laughs> I got issues with this. I, I really don't think this is what God meant. Um... It really, really hurts. It hurts me. 
would you please, would you please stop? No, Jesus made a whip and, he, and he, he got so crazy that he drove grown men away from their money out of the temple courts. Um, Jesus was so non-nurturing that, man, like he'd be walking with Peter and without, in front of everybody else, without even wasting a second, he'd look at Peter and get behind me, Satan. What you're saying right now, what you're, what you're communicating is so absolutely opposed to, to my calling and my mission. Did you go, to, you go to the back of the line. Go stand in the corner, Peter, until you're ready to grow up. You know, like, the point is, is that's, that's a pretty tough stance. And there's aspects of Jesus that we have to grapple with here that when Jesus is saying, I'm, you don't want to fall into my hands if you're working against my mission. Are we willing to have that same kind of doggedness with it? Ephesians 5, 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Titus 3.10, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. We're not playing games here. Oscar Wilde said, friends stab you in the front. Because what we realize is the critics, critic, critics um, it's like pushing someone in the back who's running. Like just get rid of the stabbing mentality, right? Somebody's running, trying to run the race, and if you push them in the back, what happens? They fall down. If you really care, you want to be strong, you come in front of them, and like in football, you stand them up. It might slow them down, but it stands them up. And they see it, and they understand it, and it wakes them up. And so are we going to be tough enough to stand people up, to stand up situations, to expose it, not just to come around behind it and, and push it down? Um, a person is someone who belongs to a family, a community, a spouse. There's a unity there. Psalm 101.4 the perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. It will not be united with me. It will not belong to me. 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. 1 Corinthians 6.18 if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning that the Spirit dwells in the temple, just like the Old Testament temple system, that God's Holy Spirit dwelt at the temple? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You do not belong to yourself if you're a Christian. Even if you're a non-Christian, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You're his. He has claim over your body and the members of your body. And so a person is their character. A person is their mission. 
A person is defined by who they belong to, who who they are united with, what family they come from. So Romans 14, let's make that the last passage we look at. Romans 14 says this. Uh, We'll read in... um, I will start in verse 6. It's talking about um, eating meat sacrificed to idols. It says this, He who regards one day as special does not uh, does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does to the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, the person that does it with intentionality to praise God, it doesn't matter the action, it's the intentionality that counts. For none of us, verse 7, lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. So whatever we do, as we're thinking about our actions and our friends and our speech, it's back to this drawing. Whatever we do is for the Lord. It goes up toward God. We grow in his character, his mission, in unity with him. Whatever we do, the opposite direction, if we live to the world, we grow in the character of the world, we begin to take on the mission of the world, we begin to belong to the world more than we belong to God, we become a part of the darkness. And so somehow we have to come to understand this, and it's not about legalism, it's not about footloose, it's about wisdom. Do you want to know God? I do. Everyone I talk to wants to know God more. We want to hear God. We want to find that we're close to God. It's really simple. And that's why it's all over scripture. Is that somehow our time, our priorities, and the people that we put ourselves around have everything to do with our character and our mission and our sense of belonging, which has everything to do with God and our closeness to God. And so somehow we have to care enough about ourselves and our life and our relationship with God from which we're going to know all peace and joy that we're willing to look at things and make very tough decisions and say, my conscience is telling me this isn't okay. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it makes me feel good, but it's costing me my very life. And somehow I have to come out of that and get alongside the people who are serving and let that begin to influence me that I might grow and mature. And somehow in this, as I take on that character and that mission and a sense of belonging with these people, I will be able to love on and try to be friends with sinners like Jesus was because by then I'll have something to call them to and to call them into and to to allow them to come along with me as I'm doing these things, I'm defined by these things. And so it's not about hating the sinner. It's about loving God. It's not about um, damning the sinner. It's about being in the position where we can actually help the sinner because we're not doing anything for them if we're living hypocritically and only facilitating what it is they're doing, what it is they care about. And so somehow, some way, I've never heard it taught on, we have to learn how to quit our friends. We have to learn how to care about God. And it's wisdom. So I'm not going to tell you, any one of you, what this would look like in your life today or tomorrow. What I'm saying is, this is a conversation that God, as a very gentle father, would be willing to have with you if you're willing to open your hands up and allow him to speak into that area of your life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we give it to you. 
God, we give it all to you. Help us in our weakness. Help us with our unbelief. Help us in our relationships. We're not strong enough in and of ourselves. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.